0: If you will, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. We're continuing in our series, Prayers for the Pilgrim. Prayers for the Pilgrim. We are looking at the second half. I say the second half. I guess uh, Jesus begins to explain in the first half of this uh, whole section. It's called the model prayer, beginning in verse 5. But we preached, or I preached, uh, Matthew 6, 5 through 8 last week. And uh, now we're going to look at verses 9 through 13. Looking at verses 9 through 13. So as you're finding your way there, uh, what's the point of prayer? What's the point of prayer? Before deciding that prayer doesn't work, you need to ask yourself how you've been trying to use it. You need to ask yourself, how have you been trying to use it? Have you been praying according to the proper guidelines and the manner that the Master himself taught us? What have you been expecting prayer to do for you? And what would it look like if it were working? In fact, if is prayer actually working supposed to work at all? Is prayer supposed to work at all? Does it perhaps have a purpose far more significant than the shallow practicality we expect like, say, a gas-powered lawnmower? Does it have more power than that? Would it be asking far too little of prayer and far too little of God to demand that it and He perform just the way we want them to? From last week's sermon, we see that prayer doesn't work. God does. God works. We pray God works. That's how prayer works. We pray God works. What we do in the private, in our devotion, our conversation, in our relationship, in our private prayer moments, is seen by God, and He decides how, when, and where He chooses to bless that faithfulness. God works through prayer, but God does the work. We are supposed to have an ongoing, healthy relationship with Him. You see, I've heard people tell me that their prayer didn't work Or their prayer wasn't answered. I've heard people say that before. You ever heard somebody say that? My prayer didn't work. My prayer wasn't answered. Well, see, God God does answer prayer, but not to our desires, but to his will. And as we walk through this framework for prayer that the Lord gives to us pilgrims, we will need to submit to his will being done on this earth and not our will. One person that I read I read a lot out of his book, Ken Hemphill, wrote a book, The Prayer of Jesus. And you may have heard of Ken Hemphill before, but his book is excellent on the model prayer. And this is what he points out, a few things about prayer. Having our requests granted is not the primary goal of prayer. Having our requests granted is not the primary goal of prayer. Prayer is not a way to alert God to our needs. Hint, hint, he knows already. Matthew 6, 8. For your father knows the things you have need of before you ask. So prayer is not going, hey God, I didn't know if you knew about this or not. (laughs) But just want to give you a heads up, I'm having a hard time. Or my friend over here is hurting. That's not to say you shouldn't pray for those things. But prayer is not to alert God to our needs. Prayer's primary purpose is to spend time in conversation with the Father. Prayer is about reward, the reward of His presence. Prayer is about reward, the reward of His presence. But so many times I think we get confused about prayer and we think prayer needs to work. It needs to answer my prayer. But the greatest reward of prayer is the fact that you're sitting in the presence of the Almighty Creator of the heavens and the earth and you're getting to have a conversation with Him without Him just handling you as needs to be handled. And one thing that Warren Wiersbe wrote in his commentary that I thought was powerful that I've never really thought about before is that prayer prepares us for the proper use of the answer. Prayer prepares us for the proper use of the answer. Because if we just flippantly or just, you know, you know, not only use I don't, I, flippantly might not be the correct word, but if we just come to prayer and we're asking for prayer, and if God answers it, what are you going to do with it then? Are you going to be grateful? Are you going to be ungrateful? Are you going to chastise God because it took him so long to, to work for you? What are we going to do? I think. Wearsby had it right. And I'm I'm telling you, that just really floored me when I read that line. Prayer prepares us for the proper use of the answer. So let us read our passage of Scripture today and begin looking at the framework for the pilgrim's prayer. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, and we're going to go through verse 13. Jesus says, In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us of our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. As we look at this passage of scripture today, Jesus begins by saying, in this manner, Therefore, pray in this manner. He's not saying mimic this prayer. He's not saying word for word, verbatim, pray this prayer. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think God's chastising us for praying the model prayer as it is. But he's wanting to give us a framework for our future prayer life, our ongoing prayer life. Where do we direct it? In this prayer, he's obviously talking to the whole of the disciples, so we notice the plural pronouns that are used, such as our Father, our daily bread, our debts and debtors, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from the evil one. So last week as I spoke and told you, look, God's not against public prayer life, but he's, I believe he's against public prayer life when there's no private prayer life. If there's no private prayer life, don't act all hoity-toity and religious and think that you've got something on somebody. You just need to say, maybe I don't need to be praying this week. Maybe I don't need to pray today on behalf of everybody else in this room. Maybe you just need to get back into your own prayer closet, which it doesn't mean it has to be literally a closet, but somewhere isolated apart from everybody else where your Father knows that you have a heartfelt desire to be with Him that you're willing to cut out time out of your schedule to say, I want to be with you, Lord Jesus, and you alone right now. And I know some of you got little kids, and sometimes that's hard to do. Sometimes you might have to go to the bathroom and lock the door. That might be your prayer closet, moms and dads. You know, sometimes that's just where it gets to. Because if if the kids are around, the grandkids are around, boy, they're underneath your feet and everywhere else, you know? So sometimes you got to find that isolated place out and about, and find it, and get there, and spend that private time with Jesus. According to Jesus, prayer should always remind us that we are a part of a larger community of believers. And even though we should do most of our praying in our homes, potentially in our closets, we should continually recognize that we live and function in a much bigger box than our prayer closets. We have no right to ask for ourselves anything. When we think about this whole Our Father, Our Daily Bread, we have no right to ask for ourselves anything that would harm another member of the family of God. If we are praying in the will of God, the answer will be a blessing to all God's people in one way or another. It will be a blessing to all in one way or another. Our Father is representative of how one would pray in public, but the Lord is also giving a general framework for personal prayer as well. To think of God as Father, also, when we read this, our Father in heaven, and, and Jesus is talking to the disciples, this would have been an absolutely radical thought for the disciples. The disciples thought of God as holy, as set apart. So to call Him as Father would be something totally new. This is this is not normal for us. I mean, we we've always thought of God as holy, as set apart. I mean even the transcribers of the old testament when they were when they were pinning the Bible, when they would write the Lord's name, they would throw that pencil away or that 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 that, that quill they throw that thing away because they were not to use that again that's how holy even the transcribers those who translated the bible from different languages that's that's how holy the name of god was seen and viewed and the disciples even thought even greater so to hear jesus speak to the father of the name even this idea of abba uh, was to hear jesus speaking in a lovingly relational reference And just as many of you have loving names for your dad, your, for your father, this is very similar. He's telling them that same thing. You need to have an ongoing relationship that's healthy enough to where when you call upon him, it's, it's because you know him. It's because you know him. And listen, I, I know I just referenced that word Abba, and many a times that's taken out of context, you know. Although this is not to be used irreverently in a public prayer, in a public prayer, you and I are speaking on behalf of all that, that are there. And maybe not everyone is relationally at the same place with the Lord God. I mean, you think about that. Some are very new believers. And although God is their Father, they might not be at that point in their relationship where they're comfortable saying that, you know. So when we come into a a public setting, our Father, there is absolutely nothing wrong with using words like that. Because it's it's reverent, it's honorable, it's honoring God the Father. But like when you're in your prayer closet, and you say, Lord Jesus, Abba Father. that's That's in the private of your closet. Man, call upon the Lord. Call upon the Lord. And you should have a relationship such as that. You know, when, when I think about how we, we interact with one another, most of the time I was always taught that the first time you meet an adult, you call them Mr. or Mrs. Fill in the last name. You didn't call an adult by a first name. Boy, that was disrespectful. You didn't dare do that. You didn't dare do that. Kids never called their moms or dads by their first name. That didn't happen, buddy. That was a whipping. That was, that was discipline or something. You didn't call mom and daddy by, by something else. And I still call my mom, mom, and I call my dad, Daddy. And uh, there was a time when I called my mom, Mother. I don't know why, but for some odd reason, I went through a stint where I called her Mother. And uh, I've called Daddy, Daddy my whole life. And I listened to a preacher, and he says, no adult male should be calling his dad, Daddy. Well, I'm sorry, but that's just what I do. I got a Daddy, all right? And I love my Daddy, and I love my Mama. And I got a Mama and a Daddy. And sometimes I call her mom and mother, but most of the time he's just daddy. I've never called him father. That just sounds so weird. Because you know why? Because I got a relationship with him. I got a relationship with him. I got a relationship with my mom. I've never, I've, like I said, I called her mother for a little while. I think it was just I was starting college somewhere in there for some odd reason, it got in my head, and I did that. But, but when we've got a relationship with somebody, we call them a little bit more of an intimate name, a personal name, you know? I've got nicknames for, for Julie Brogan and Taryn. you know? And so I call them by their nicknames all the time. Uh, But if if I call them by their name, I'm really trying to get their attention. I know I ain't got to worry about getting the Lord's attention. I've got a relationship with Him, so I don't have to get all formal, you know. But if we're in a public setting, I do believe it's healthy for us to use that type of language in a healthy way. Communicating with our Father, you know. Communicating with our Father, as I said enough, the the reward, the reward of prayer is the reward of the Lord's presence, the reward of His presence. And communicating with our Father is enough. And if that is the purpose, there is no such thing as an unanswered prayer. If you think about it from that perspective. But I think so many times we come with this perspective of, here's my need, God, fix it now. Like God's a magic genie in a bottle, I'm just going to rub this prayer lamp. And, I'm, and Jesus is supposed to do my wishes when, in, when prayer is more about me submitting my will to God so that I may do His wishes and just be rewarded by the fact that I'm in His presence. And I'm guilty of that. I've been guilty of that many a times. Probably been guilty this week of it. Even studying this text, I was like, you know what, Lord, this is a whole new dynamic and thought pattern that you brought before my mindset this week. So we, we need to be honoring the Father. And where does it say the Father is? He says, our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven, he is is on his throne. Now, he's only stood up from that throne a few times in the scriptures, but he's never left it. He's always been at the throne or on it. The Father has. And so when we think about that, that is an image. When we mention the direction in which our prayers are given, it is the throne room of our Father. It is heaven. That's where he's at. And the mentioning of heaven also reminds us of God's sovereign rule over all things. He's on the throne. And the theme of Heavenly Father is throughout the Old Testament. I'm not going to quote all the Bible passages where you can find it. But the Bible, the first mention is Deuteronomy 14.1. And then throughout the Old Testament you hear it. And then Hosea 11.1 is where the second place, where the final place is. It's mentioned in the Old Testament. Second line, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's, that's His name is to be treated as holy. And we know his name is holy. We know he is holy because in heaven, the angels are around the throne of God saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. He says that and the angels have said that. We are to cry out his name is holy. It's the only characteristic of God that's named thrice, three times in the Bible. And so we know his name is holy. And Jesus has a name higher than any other name. And God gave him that name. Why? Because he is holy. And the name is holy. And Jesus has a name higher than any other name. Tony Evans wrote a book entitled The Power of God's Names. And they are all descriptors of his character, which is overall holy. But here are a few of those names and meanings. The names of God, Elohim, which means the strong creator God. Jehovah, the relational God. Adonai, the God who rules. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord our provider. Jehovah Sasha, the Lord is our warrior. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is our peace. So in our prayers, we are to trust the name of the Lord with holiness and In sanctity he is all of those things those are characteristics of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and God our Father he is all those things so we see his name is to be treated as holy because it is it's set apart and different thirdly he says your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven so why do we want his kingdom to come because his kingdom is good his kingdom is good, so we pray for his kingdom to be here on earth because we know there is a lot of bad in this world today. We want God's good kingdom to be on this earth. And we need his kingdom, and that kingdom, excuse we need his kingdom, and that kingdom comes through you and me. We are the kingdom of God. There's a song we've sung many a times, and I'm sure that rung true when I said that out loud uh, by Christian Stanfield called Uh, kingdom I've sung that and I ran that song in the ground and I love it and I'll sing it some more but uh, we are the kingdom of God we bring the kingdom wherever we go and 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 how people see the kingdom of God is how we represent it in our lives so people will determine whether or not I want to be a part of that kingdom many a times based upon our speech our attitudes and our actions So we bring the kingdom of God, and how people observe and judge the kingdom of God many a times is based upon my life and your life. So we need to be aware. If we're praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, how are we as individuals bringing the kingdom of God to this earth? Are people seeing Christ in us? We know His kingdom is good. His will is good. And God's passive will is for every person to come to faith in Him. 2 Peter 3.9 tells us this, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's in 2 Peter 3.9. It's His desire that all come to faith in Him. That's his passive will. Now, God also knows everybody's not going to come to faith in him. But God knows who is. So, what are we to do? As, as the kingdom of God, as we are the kingdom of God, we are the vessels through which the will of God is manifest. 2 Timothy 2.21 says this If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy. Useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. That's how the ESV translates that passage of Scripture. We are to be kingdom-minded people. We are bringing the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, prayerfully as it is in heaven, not as it is in our perspective or in our will. We are to bring the kingdom of God. We bring His will on earth. So let us pray, realizing we are a smaller part of a bigger whole For the purpose to hallow God's name, bring the Lord's kingdom on earth, and see His will be accomplished here. Heaven is good because He is there. That's what makes heaven good. God's there. If God wasn't there, it wouldn't be heaven. It'd be hell. But where God is, is heaven because that's where He is. His kingdom is perfect there. His will is perfectly accomplished there. So we should desire to see it fulfilled here. One commentator put it this way. God says, you focus on my kingdom and I in turn will manage your kingdom. You focus on my kingdom and I in turn will will manage your kingdom. Fourthly, he says, give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Now our daily bread... Is an understanding that we are to come back to the Lord for our provisions regularly. Daily is what it says. To maintain the relationship and maintain the health of our lives. We should come back to Him daily. Our relationship should not be a Sunday and Sunday and potentially Wednesday and Sunday and I'll take this Sunday off and then the next Sunday kind of relationship. Our relationship is give us this day our daily bread. Jesus is the bread of life. Obviously, this is talking about the the things of earth that that we need to make it from day to day. But Jesus is ultimately the greatest bread of life. And he is what we really need every day more than anything else. So we are to trust in Christ as the provider for each of our daily needs. And just a little piece over in your Bibles, in Matthew 6, 25 through 34, we see where Jesus compels the disciples to allow God to handle their needs. And as the Scripture read in Matthew 6, 8, the Father knows what you need before you even ask. But if you look there in Matthew 6, 25 through 34, I'm not going to read that whole thing for time purposes, but he talks about how don't worry about your food, don't worry about your clothing, Just trust the Lord. Love Him. Have a relationship with Him. Does He not provide for the birds? Does He not array the the flowers in beautiful arraignment? Does He not take care of them? There's no bird that falls to the ground that the Lord does not know about. He takes care of all of them. He loves you greater than those. He'll take care of you. So God will supply our need as we are deepening our relationship with Him through prayer. Number five, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgiveness is the core of salvation and of grace. Forgiveness is at the core of salvation and of grace. As God through Jesus has shown us grace and forgiveness, we too should show grace and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Lewis Swedes explains forgiveness in four stages. The first stage is hurt. The second stage is hate. The third is healing, and the fourth is coming together. These are the four, this is what Lewis Swede says, are the four stages of forgiveness. And when you think about hurt, someone might think, you're a Christian. If you take all these things in stride, you you can take all these things in stride. You're a Christian. Even in the midst of hurt. No, you still hurt. We still hurt. So don't be afraid of it. That's part of the process. The first thing in forgiveness is hurt. Secondly, he says, is hate. And, and you may say, that can't be godly. That can't be godly to hate. And I'm not saying hate is godly. It's a, it is humanly natural to hurt and to hate. And at this stage, you are possibly desiring the same pain to occur to them that has been brought on you. Now, that is not godly of you, but it's also a fleshly side of the issue that we just can't shake off. You know, we'd love just to bypass that, right? And say, I'm not angry at this person. I don't, I I mean, it'd be really nice to, you you know, I'm hurt by this person. Now I hate this person. And many of you maybe have felt that in your lives at some point. But you got to be cautious about that. The Bible says, be ye angry and sin not. It's one thing to be angry about something. It's another thing to sin within that anger. Don't hate in the anger. You can't just shake it off. The third thing is healing. And God gives you an insight and perspective like his for that sinful person or the person who unknowingly hurt you in a new light. God gives you a new insight and perspective for that person. You turn away from the flesh and begin to turn to the Spirit that has forgiven you. You and I have been forgiven much. We need to be mindful of that. We've all been forgiven much. So we in turn need to be people who forgive much as well. Brandon Heath wrote a song. I'm not going to sing this part. But Brandon Heath wrote a song called Give Me Your Eyes. And in it he said, give me your eyes for just one second. Give me your eyes so I can see. Everything I keep missing, give me your love for humanity. Give me the arms for the brokenhearted, the ones that are far beyond my reach. Give me your eyes for just one second. Give me your eyes so I can see. And we need to have eyes that, that, that are willing to see as Christ sees, as he has seen us through forgiveness. We have much against Christ. Much. When I say against him, I mean our sin against him. Uh, we have sinned against God. I don't have something against God, but I have sinned against God. Got to make sure you phrase that in the correct context. But God yet forgave me. God yet allowed himself to be nailed to that cross. He could have called down 10,000 angels. You know, Satan tipped it with that. He could have, but that was not the plan. That was not the will of the Father. Because the will of God is good. Remember? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. His will is good. And Jesus knew that even on the cross. So there's hurt, there's hate, there's healing, and then there's coming together. You have the opportunity to invite this person back into relationship. Now listen, this isn't always healthy nor desired by you or the other person. But through forgiveness, a healthy relationship, whether close or distance, distant, is no longer tension-filled or pain-involved. It can be in a way that it's no longer tension-filled and pain-involved. And it may be. This fourth stage of coming together, it depends on the person you forgive as much as it depends on you. So if you forgive somebody, don't feel like this relationship is under obligation to be restored. You know, back to where it was. It may be that God says, you know what, you don't need to be with that person no more. You don't need to be worried about that no more. But you can love that person and say, I've asked for forgiveness. Maybe for what I've done in the relationship, God, I ask you to forgive that person for what they've done in the relationship. Or even if it isn't even a relationship, it's just coworkers or whatever it may be. But then you can go on with your life. Because listen, I'm going to tell you something. One thing about unforgiveness, it's much like bitterness. It's going to draw you in. And the worst person it affects is you. Unforgiveness affects you and I worse than anybody else. And sometimes the person that does not come back, and you sometimes this person does not come back and come together in that sense. Sometimes this person does not come back, and you have to heal alone. Maybe you have to heal with a small group. Maybe it's your Sunday school group. Maybe you have to heal with your family. Or maybe it's you need your church family to come around you and heal with you. One of the songs uh, that, that I think of when I think about that, I think about a song by Matthew West. Some of you maybe have heard it. It's called Forgiveness. It's a powerful song, and um, it goes like this. It says, it's the hardest thing to give away And the last thing on your mind today It always goes to those who don't deserve It's the opposite of how you feel When the pain they've caused is just too real Takes everything you have to say the word Forgiveness It flies in the face of all your pride It moves away the mad inside. It's always anger's own worst enemy. Even when the jury and the judge say you've got a right to hold a grudge, it's the whisper in your ear saying, set it free. Forgiveness. And we think about forgiveness, it is hard. It's hard. And in that chorus it says, show me how to love the unlovable. Show me how to reach the unreachable. Help me now to do the impossible. Forgiveness. And in the last verse it says, It'll clear the bitterness away. It can even set a prisoner free. There is no end to what its power can do. So let it go and be amazed by what you see through eyes of grace. The prisoner that it really frees is you. Forgiveness.